0: My name is Thomas Fona, I'm a partner at Pillinger Miller Torello, and I'd like to welcome you to Pillinger Miller Torello's podcast, Risk Matters. Risk Matters will examine thought-provoking insurance and risk management topics by interviewing leaders in the insurance industry. Our host today is Jeffrey D. Shulman. Jeff Shulman is the managing partner of Pillinger Miller Torello's upstate New York offices in Syracuse and Buffalo. He is highly experienced, in construction, environmental, risk transfer, and transportation, as well as other areas. Our guest today is Nancy Kalinoglu. Nancy is the Director of Risk Management and Claims for city underwriting agency, specializing in labor law and construction. Prior to that, she was Risk Manager at Lend-Lease, and before that, she was an Assistant Vice President at Aon. Jeff, Let's dig in. All
1: right. Well, um, most of you don't know, but Nancy and I have known each other for many years, Um, but I got to uh, learn more about Nancy researching for the interview. And Nancy, I learned that you played soccer not only in high school, but you played at St. John's, which is fantastic. Um, And I was curious um, what playing at that high level uh, for a varsity team taught you about business and what lessons you learned that you took with you after you graduated.
2: Yes, so um it was uh great to be part of a team while in college. uh Not only did it help me to uh make friendships that I've kept all my life um but it taught me to be a team player, and it also um helped me to become more involved in school, which not only um was seen through my sportsmanship, but also academically. Uh, I spent a lot of time on campus, um, traveled with a great bunch of ladies, had a great coach. So uh, it was a lot of fun. But again, it taught me, um, I'll tell you a a big thing, which we didn't think of back then, but it taught me a lot about inclusion because um, it was a really mixed bunch of ladies you know we just had a great time together it didn't matter your background or where you came from and um we supported each other and it was a great experience
1: it's interesting you mentioned inclusion and one of my questions like down the line was uh asking uh you about being a woman in a kind of male-dominated industry as you know insurance is you know uh fairly male-dominated, as most businesses are, and you came out pretty early on in your career to establish yourself. What challenges did you face as a woman entering kind of a man's world in the insurance business?
2: Well, you know, I've been doing this for, as you said, many, many years. Um, And right away, I knew um, that there were um, preconceived notions that a woman had to overcome. Back in the 50s and the 60s, there was that image, if you saw on a TV show an insurance agent or an insurance broker, what did you generally see? You saw a man sitting at his desk, probably his feet up, crossed, right? No papers in front of him, talking about insurance off the top of his head, negotiating claims, um, and uh, not always being very... um, Honest in those negotiations, so uh, the in the insurance industry as a whole had to kind of get past that image, and then being a woman, um, having to earn the trust um, and show my knowledge, so that I was accepted um, by others in the in industry. You know, some attorneys will, oh, this is a woman. This will, this will be an easy case to um, to resolve, to negotiate. She's not going to know what she's talking about. So myself and women at the time, we had to work harder. We had to um, make sure that we were more knowledgeable. Uh, we had to be a little more, um, uh, I don't want to say forceful, but we had to be, uh, you know, um, more uh, aggressive because we needed to show that you know not only could we do the job, but we can do it just as well, if not better than a man, and so getting over this image and and um, showing that we were educated women in the industry who really wanted to um, change the industry, be more forthright, be more honest, and um, go forward from there,
1: mm mm-hmm. now. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were a criminal justice major in college? Correct. So so then how did you end up picking this? You know, we all ended up somehow lucking into this industry, but how did you get into insurance?
2: Okay, so no disrespect. Um, I uh, attended St. John's uh, with the thought of becoming an attorney. Always wanted to be a lawyer. So um, St. John's didn't have a pre-law program. They directed me to criminal science, criminal justice. Um, and I was, uh, the child of, of an immigrant. Um, so I was told by my parents when it came, when I graduated high school, if you want to go to college, that's terrific because just about nobody in our family had gone, Mm -hmm. but you have to pay yourself. And, uh, St. John's was not uh, a D1 school, uh, for women's soccer. So there was no scholarship money. Um, and there were no dorms. So, you know, it was a commuter school. Mm -hmm. So, between working and um playing sports and and whatnot at school, i uh, had uh, amassed some student loans, mm-hmm. which when I think back of today, I mean St John's at the time was thirty two hundred dollars a year. Mm-hmm. so you know, my student loans after four years were maybe Seven or eight thousand dollars. When I think about what these kids today, yeah, even you know, in today's
1: it, dollars, right? And it's amazing the debt that kids are mounting today because tuition's so much more. I don't even want to guess what St. John's costs, but it's probably about twenty thousand or so now, right?
2: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, at the time, though, you know, you're making five dollars an hour, so it, like I said, it was all relative in, with today's dollars. But um, so anyway, when I graduated um, St. John's, I said, you know what? Let me work for a little bit, pay off some of my debt. um, And then I will take the LSATs and uh, apply to law school. I went down to the career center Mm -hmm. and they said, well, you know, there's um, claims adjusters positions that you might be interested in because of your education. I said, okay. So I applied for a few and I actually was hired um, by travelers and Prudential at the time had a um, P and C program. Mm-hmm. And they started a week apart. Travelers started first, and I said, "Well, let me start with travelers and see if I like it." And sure enough, by Thursday, I had called um, Prudential and said, "Sorry, but I've got another job, and I'm and I'm staying where I am." Um, and that's kind of how I fell into insurance.
1: Mm, and you never look back, right? Here and, you are, and
2: exactly. And yeah. back then, when you started with an insurance company, they actually um, invested in your training. I had one month of classroom training on everything from uh, contract law and, and terms and conditions, which I'd had in school anyway, mm-hmm. to how to uh, determine liability, how to evaluate an injury, how to, re- how to read a medical report. Uh, it was an intense one month that I was like, what did I get myself into? This is worse than, you know, any class I took at college.
1: Yeah. Yeah it's, hard. yeah. it's very, it was very specific, but it's good that they had that training, I think, because coming, you know, when we all came out of school, we didn't really know anything, even though we thought we did. Um, so to get that practical training and not just throw you to the wolves, is probably a good thing. And did you have like early mentors where you still to this day have lessons that they taught you that you, 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 you know, employ uh, daily or in, in your work?
2: Yes and no. Um, When uh, I was done with the training and they put us out in different departments, um, I had uh, what I like to call some dinosaurs in the business Mm -hmm. who I listened to what they said, uh, watched how they behaved, and um, asked them questions. And that's kind of how I... um, Took on the role that I did and and and, and made it my own. Mm-hmm. Um, just really watching the people around me and sure. whether it was good or not. Because then, of course, uh, after a few years at Travelers, I figured, well, I'm better than everybody else here, and I had to move. <laughs> I want to get you know do more and be more intense and 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 get more training and and that's something that I've actually always followed. Um, if I can be educated in any way in any field, but especially in this industry, I've sat through um, law seminars, I've sat through claim seminars, I've sat through medical seminars, uh, coverage seminars, anything that I could do to help me become more educated in this industry. Um, I've always, even to this day, always taking my uh, CE credits and I take them, you know, very seriously. I don't just Mm -hmm. look for an easy class to sit through, trying to learn something new, trying to learn um, how I can be a better insurance representative.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where we met on the conference circuit where you, know, you do take classes and while there's some, of course, there's some social interaction, there is a lot of education available uh, to people. And there are some very, you know, interesting courses you know, for us who are, are, who are in the business. Um, and when you were at Travelers, you did a decent amount of coverage work, right? And we're testifying as a, as a witness, I believe? Okay. Yeah, you have yes, any correct. stories about lawyers that, uh, you know, either at trial or, or depositions that were memorable?
2: Oh, my goodness, yes. So um, back around 90, I think it was uh, 96, travelers had decided uh, in a unique way to bring coverage in-house, and they hired an in-house coverage attorney, and they actually made a coverage department. There were a few of us uh, in the department, and uh, what we would do... Once a week, we would have a uh, coverage conference on anybody who out out on the floor in any um, claim. They can sign up, bring it in, and we would discuss the coverage. And so my role was if there was a coverage issue, uh, whether it was a reservation of rights or a full out disclaimer, that claim, that file would come to me and I would be uh, responsible for writing the letter and any follow up on that. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) Um, as you can imagine, there were a lot of pushbacks to the letter. And um, if the client, the insured, filed suit, I would be the claim representative that would uh, represent a trial, depositions or trial, because I wrote the letter that was right. at issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, uh, one time I had uh, an attorney who had read uh, John Grisham's novel, you know, and his first question was, isn't it true that you deny all claims before you, you know, act on them? And I'm like, um, <laughs> yeah, I think I read that book too and saw that in the movies. So <laughs> like, no, that's not what we do. We don't deny all claims first and then only accept the ones that get pushed back on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, another time I was at a framed issue hearing and the judge was asking me questions. Okay. He actually... Steps off the bench and comes down to the witness box where I was sitting, and he holds onto the side of the box and he's asking me questions. And he starts exercising. He's doing deep knee bends <laughs> while I'm trying to answer his question. <laughs> so I'm like, "What is going on?" And he's putting his hands up and doing all kinds of stretches. And I was like, "Oh, this is very bizarre," but oh. I don't want to get on the wrong side of the judge, so oh. okay.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great story. I've yeah, never seen yeah. that. And I've been in you know hundreds of courtrooms over the years and. I've never seen uh something that crazy That's oh it was
2: funny. it was it was very funny i was like okay whatever whatever you want to do at i'm least with it his,
1: i assume he kept his robe on so at least you had that yes yes
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh after travelers i know you went to uh Aon on the broker side and then uh, went to lend and, and i think some of that you know when we talk about construction claims you know, when you and I deal with claims, it's often too late. The accidents already happen, or if it's a construction defect, the problem's already arisen. Um, but I know that you also worked uh, pretty heavily on the side of preventing incidents and preventing issues and problems. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, I think particularly uh, with regard to construction safety, I think that's such an important field when we talk about risk management, and especially with your experience at Lendlease.
2: Yes, yes. So um, that I was actually exposed to that starting at Aon, where um, I was um, in the claims department helping clients with claims. But because I was looking at loss runs and seeing their claims all the time, I would be able to note trends. And um, Aon had a uh, loss control department. And I got to be very friendly with the people in the loss control department because I would call them up and say, hey, listen, you know, this client is having. a, 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 a tremendous amount of claims falling from a ladder or um appears as though they're not wearing their harness and they're they're falling you know um at the site uh from a height or whatever it might be it might have even just been um general housekeeping a lot of trip and fall, so I kind of got um uh Familiar with some of the um, loss control services that they would go out there. They would do an inspection. They would talk with the um, the owners. They would talk with the supers. They would talk to the employee, the the workers on the site. What's going on? Um, so when I was then hired at LenLease to work in their um, insurance department, again, because I was on the forefront of the claims coming in from around the country. If there was a particular project or a particular um, location that we saw a lot of uh, trends going on. I would either um, go out with loss control and now we would do the inspection together and I would see how they would handle the employee and, and the super, and every, basically everybody on the site because it's, you know, safety is a team concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also um, a culture and, at the time when I was at Len Lease, we were trying to change the culture, and I think they were very good at it. Um, to say to the employees, "Listen, we truly do want you to go home the way you came in." I mean, I know a lot of um, of the workers hear that these days, but you know, n- nobody wants to go home and say, "Oh my God, you know, one of my employees lost a finger; they're in the hospital." You know, nobody wishes that on on anyone. So. Um, know, we would stop work, we would call employees off a ladder and say, you know, where's your harness? Where's where's, um, somebody who's holding the ladder for you? Um, You know, there's no railings on the lift, you need to put the railings on. Um, So they were very diligent in safety, they had a large safety department, a large loss control department. And um, it started to teach me on what to look for when I was out on a job site or when I was investigating a claim, asking what, what really happened, what's going on? Was this available? Was this safety device available? Um, why wasn't it being used, et cetera, et cetera. So it helped not only with the claims, but it helped to hopefully um, bring some awareness before a claim so that, you know, even if we kept one person from getting injured, it, it, it was a great thing.
1: Right. And, and I think that's an, a really great thing to to instill that in the culture of the organization, and let the you know the people that are on the ground know that you really do care about safety as a company, and that's that's our culture. Um, have you seen uh, some trends in technology on you know these larger construction sites as it affects safety?
2: Oh yeah, especially um, these days, uh, a lot of the contractors are getting uh, the 360 cameras. And they'll do a uh, a 360 picture of the job site um, before they leave Mm -hmm. so that you know what it looks like um, in case anything happens overnight. They'll do it in the morning when they first come in. Um, There's uh, cameras now. Not a lot of um, contractors are using them at this point, but there are cameras that you can uh, have installed on hard hats or on um, vests, kind of like police officers, so you can see what's going on unfortunately the, the, the worker feels like this is keeping a tab on them or keeping Mm -hmm. a tab on their friend. Um, but it's really, it's not, it's a tool for a near miss event. You know, um, maybe something happens, nobody gets injured, but you can learn from that event and you can see it on a camera. You know, it's not to, to tell on someone, um, another tool that a lot of contractors are starting to use, uh, on the cell phone. If, you're a worker and you see something that's not safe. Um, you can actually text your super and let the super come and take care of it, you know, so that they, this way you're not really telling on the person, but yet, you know, you're aware, you know, making someone um, aware of the fact that there's a potential unsafe condition that can lead to an injury on a site.
1: Is that um, anonymous or, or no, they know where it's coming from, but...
2: It can be anonymous or um, it can be discoverable that, you know, they'll know who it's from because some companies Mm -hmm. do actually reward if you report so many incidents um, that, you know, to show that you're aware of your surroundings while you're walking around at your job site and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, taking care of people.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, we've heard about the potential trend in body cams and or more cameras, you know, depending on what stage of construction, but let's say before the, you know, mechanicals going and the steel's up, and they have cameras posted. Uh, as a as an attorney who handles the claims, I can only see that being favorable in that if it's going to capture an incident, we know what happened and we can address the claim appropriately. Um, before an incident happens, we review the camera and we can see how our workers did that day. And I can understand the worker pushback that you mentioned, but at least if you're talking about culture, right, and you've instilled this. Culture of look, we really want to take care of you. That's what this is for. It's not Big Brother, you know, making sure you're getting the most out of your, you know, eight hours on the job. I think that it would be great if we saw more of that. And i I've seen, you know, cameras, you know, in on tavern cases, dram shop cases. I've seen them in a lot of restaurants, but I don't see them as as much in the construction uh, industry. And I hope we do.
2: Yeah, some you're going to start seeing them, especially on ground up construction. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, street and road, they really can't use that. Um, though I know Chris Dickerson from the city would love to somehow be able to surveil every milling project that's going on, <laughs> but, um, I think you're going to see a lot more of that, uh, like I said, on the ground up construction, um, and interior fit out construction. Um, and again, it's really to keep people safe. I'd like to liken it to the, uh, telematics on a, on a vehicle. hmm So, with uh, a lot of uh, our fleets, I always recommend getting the telematics. Now, you have the option of having a um, camera facing in the cab as well as outside of the cab. Most people go with the just the outside of the cab, and I tell them, you know what? Even if it shows that your driver is at fault, at least then we can learn from what happened. And from the insurance standpoint, we can have the carrier resolve the claim more quickly. It's not something that's going to be litigated for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, if it shows that you're not at fault, it's a great defense tool. That's right. And even the interior cameras, they, they really are um, a, a learning tool because, um, you know, you'll see where a, um, a driver is being distracted. And it doesn't mean he's doing it on purpose. He's not purposely on his phone, but, you know, maybe he's eating a French fry. Maybe something on the side of the road caught his eye. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's not something that someone's going to punish an employee for. It happens, you know, or, you know, you're falling asleep because you've had too many hours on the road or conversely, you've didn't get a good night's sleep the night before. So you might have only been on the road for an hour, but you, you know, you're starting to fall asleep. And if someone's monitoring that camera and they see that, hey, Joe is not paying attention, there's something going on here. They can call him in or tell him to pull over. You know, it's, it's all in the way it's being used. Most of the clients that we have and most of the contractors that I've seen are not using it as a punishment.
1: Yeah. And, and I've seen we do a fair amount of transportation defense and we see dash cams almost everywhere now. And we do see them, you know, both facing out, which usually gets, you know, captures the accident. And then we see them facing in. And more often than not, it's actually become a good defense tool. Uh, then you know, it's confirmed liability. I mean, a liability case generally, especially as something relatively simple as a, an auto accident with you know, trucking, um, you can usually tell who's at fault and there may be varying degrees of liability, right? But uh, so the, the camera, I think the cameras have only helped us to defend the cases. And then, yeah, on the ones that are really bad, you know you, know you wanna resolve those anyway um so uh i think they're excellent i mean i wish we saw them more and i am looking forward to seeing those more because we do so much labor law and i would love to see what happened and how the site is set up and you know safety devices that may or may not have been available i mean that's so important um you know we know obviously in new york we've done a, a lot of labor law and we've done a lot together um one of the the trickiest parts of litigating claims in New York is labor law 240 right um and for those of you who are listening who don't know labor law 240 it's basically the gravity related statute that protects employees who are involved in a gravity related accident and if they're not provided adequate safety devices uh a contractor or an owner can be statutorily liable and there's no comparative fault which is what makes it so uh potentially punitive really against an owner and general contractor. Um, We've always talked about internally at the firm and with contractors and insurance clients that we would like some, see some revision in the law that would account for some potential comparative on the part of the worker. And, you know, we know that the plaintiff's bar in New York has done a fantastic job of lobbying the statute, right. And making sure that it sticks. Why do you think it is that uh, from uh, the, uh, you're on the board of the Long Island Contractors Association, right?
2: Uh, it's Long Island Claims Association. Long Island Claims
1: Association. Okay, Correct. so you know that's one group that could be involved in helping to lobby Albany, right, to change that law and not to eradicate the law. I think we've all seen the value in protecting workers, but to make it more sensible. Why do you think it hasn't been? Uh, we haven't been able to mobilize that at all as a as a defense kind of. Uh, uh, both in the contracting and insurance world,
2: so that's an interesting question because I know um, the to the attorneys that I speak with um, who have taken place in uh, taken part of um, the Albany labor law days where they go up to Albany um, and try and talk with representatives in order to have this um, amended. Um, I think that they're starting to get um, discouraged. I know uh, I've heard in the past that uh, you know you'll have busloads of uh, defense people um, go to Albany, and they can't even get an appointment to meet with someone, or they're meeting with you know the secretary of a secretary of somebody else uh, who's going to take notes, um, and the the politicians. So And just like judges, uh, you know, they they want to believe in their hearts that they're there to protect people. OK, plus they get voted in. And what what a better way, you know, to be say that I'm protecting you by not changing the labor law. Um, so it's it's really um, having to break that. I don't know if it's a mentality, you know, that you're, if you keep it on the books, eventually you're going to put people out of jobs. Um, So many small contractors who are safe or were safe had to close shop because they couldn't afford the insurance in New York. And if you look around the country, New York is the only state that has a labor law on the books. and The cost of insurance because of the labor law has quadrupled the cost of projects to be completed in New York. And that really affects all of us because it's your tax dollars that are paying for federally funded and state funded projects that are paying quadruple the cost of insurance because the politician won't change the law because they think they're protecting someone. And as you said earlier, um, it's not that the defense bar wants to eradicate the, the law. They want it to be amended so that if an employee is at fault for his accident, either whole or in part, that um, a jury can um, take that into consideration. But the way it is currently on the books, You could have an employee who is the competent person in erecting a scaffold or a lift of some sort, um, chooses not to do it properly and not to do the inspection properly, gets up on the the scaffold or the the lift and falls. And he won't be held responsible at all Uh, under one or two defenses, but... No, but there's a general
1: proposition that's correct. Right. Anyway. Correct.
2: So that is in turn then um, causing the um, his employer to have to pay more on a claim um, than his fair share, you know, um, and that is going to drive up the insurance costs. And let's face it, you know, insurance companies are in the business to make money. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, if in New York, your average labor law claim is settling for $2.4 million, is that what they're saying now? It used to be 1.7. Now I know they're saying it's starting to pierce the excess layers over the $2 million, so about $2.4 million. Um, they're either not going to write the insurance companies, they're not going to write Insurance in New York, or you're going to pay a lot of money. But again, people don't realize how it affects them, uh, you know, everybody in the state because of the, the cost of insurance to do these other projects such but, as the Sea Bridge?
1: No, well, absolutely. I think that was the, the second fixed cause, right, of the entire job was insurance as it relates to the that project, which is really crazy. And it's a large part because of Labor Law 240 and that statute having no uh, uh, provision for comparative fault. And you hit it on the head, we're the only state in the country that has this law that all other 49 states who I think do a fine job protecting their workers, right, and they certainly provide recourse for injured workers to obtain recovery, and that's not what we're saying, that they shouldn't uh, obtain recovery where a contractor is at fault. Um, But I have seen, you know, I'm upstate New York and in Syracuse and Buffalo, and we've seen dozens and dozens of family-owned contracting business, ironworking businesses and steam fitters and electricians. And they go out of business because they can't afford to keep up with some of the larger contractors who can absorb the cost of insurance, or in turn, as you know, pass the risk on to the subcontractors through contracts. So it's really a, a, a major problem in New York that uh, I'm just, I'm always very just Completely vexed by the fact that this can't get any uh, any legs in in the assembly or the state senate. I talked to a state senator not too long ago, and he more or less laughed and said, "You know, good luck, you know, trying to, you know, get it amended." Yeah. And uh, so it's certainly here to stay for as long as you know, at least as I can see. And uh, we've seen a little bit of uh, trends in the case law uh, interpreting it a little more narrowly, but that's you know a subject for another day, I suppose. Um, uh, I wanted to, of course, ask you about your position with uh, City Underwriting. Uh, I don't know too much about it, and I wanted you to share that with us, if you could, and what you're doing now.
2: Sure, sure. So, um, City Underwriting is an Acreshore company. Um, Acreshore, I think, is now the fourth largest broker um, in the country, and it's actually um, maybe the sixth largest uh, worldwide. Uh, And we are a conglomerate of smaller brokers um, who each offer different services, and we rely upon each other to help out with um, offering those services to our clients collectively. So what I do, um, I supervise a uh, claim staff of four people and uh, provide loss control services. What is unique about what we do here at city underwriting um, is that I get to see every claim that comes in, and I, I again, can start noting trends for clients. Um, is there an issue with repeated accidents, why they're happening? And I can get in front of it and I can get out to that client and say, "Listen, you know, in the last five months, you've had this kind of a loss. What's going on?" Sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a culture. sometimes it's just not investing in safety. Um, so what I really love about the position is being able to educate um on the safety side to try and prevent those those accidents and and the losses. I go out to the the job sites you know I put on my work boots and my hard hat and my mm-hmm. vest and um I'll go out there and take a look around and I'll talk to the folks out there and see what's going on or why are things happening. Uh, if it's a contractor who is having issues with a frame ladders, I tell them, throw them away and get platform ladders. If you need a ladder, cause you can't use a lift or you can't use a scaffold, you can't mm-hmm. use a Baker scaffold, then use at a minimum, a platform ladder. Uh, platform ladders now have become, you know, uh, lighter and more, uh, easier to, to, um, to, to travel. So, um, they're safer and, uh, a lot of the clients have, uh, started doing that. And, um, and you know, then all of a sudden you'll see that these, there's, um, less falls from ladders. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell you quite honestly, I don't know how a contractor, especially a super or a foreman can do it out there today because, um, Not only do they have to be aware of all the OSHA regulations, which, you know, I go out and I help them with that as well. Um, So they're trying to follow the OSHA regulations. Now they also have to know the labor law, which is different from OSHA, right? You know, they think it's the same, but there's different um, requirements, different statutes. And whereas OSHA may say, okay, you don't need full protection um, unless you're working over six feet. Well, we know uh, on the labor law side, if you fall a foot and you know break your ankle, now you're subject to the labor law. And the foreman's like, well, but what do you mean? What, you know, what what was wrong with uh, using the method that I used, or why did he need a, a, a safety device? And it's like because the labor law is different from OSHA, and you need to kind of look at all of it and um, and know all of it. And when you show these um, Project foreman, that all right. So you got a project that was um, ten million dollars income to the company, but now you had three claims. Maybe you have a deductible, and you, you even if the deductible is only a fifty thousand dollar deductible, and you you know subtract you know what you had to pay out of pocket for your deductible, and now also because of those claims, the insurance premium goes up. Um, now all of a sudden that you know three million dollar. Um, Profit to the company is gone. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: so um, in this position that I'm at here, uh, lost control and claims, I get to see it all. I'm involved in all of it, and I try and help the client be aware of all of it and 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 make it like a program. You know, you, you need to they they work together, they work together, and uh, you need to get a hold of all of it. Educate on all fronts.
1: In addition to the site safety visits and, you know, working on improving site safety, do you also get involved in claims investigation, you know, or a reported claim or, you know, emergency response, that kind of thing?
2: Yes, absolutely. So uh, sometimes when an accident happens at a site, I'm the first person that the in, the insured will call uh, to report it. So um, if uh, if it's a severe matter, if it's a serious matter, I'll get, um, an investigator out right away, tell the client, don't let anybody leave. I don't care if they say they saw it or not, because a negative statement is just as good as a, a, an eyewitness statement, you know, because we all know, and I hate to say it, but you know, three weeks down the line, if somebody has an attorney, all of a sudden their friend witnessed the accident when he was really, you know, back in his car doing something else, um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I do get involved in the claim investigations assignment to um, claim investigators if uh, the carrier allows. What I try and do with our clients is, again, putting together a program so that right from the beginning, the carrier knows this is who the the investigative company is going to be if it's on their approved list. This is who the attorney is going to be if it's on the approved list. So I can notify the carrier and notify the attorney and notify the investigator right away. Because a lot of times when you report it to a carrier, even if it's a serious matter, you have to have it escalated and it could still take up to 24 hours to be assigned and no one's going to look at it until then. Um, So um, I try and get that all on the books before, uh, you know, when we bring a client on board, we we make this program together and who we're going to call and and how it's going to um, uh, play out.
1: Yeah, you know, we have an emergency response team, too, for construction accidents, and I can't, it's so important. We uh, just lectured last week for an insurance carrier, and we spent, I think it was an hour lecture, we probably spent a half of it discussing how important early investigation is, because you really need to, as you said, it, I couldn't say it better. I mean, you need to not only lock up witnesses, but you need to lock up people who We're not witnesses, you know, to prove a negative, which is very difficult to prove later on. And we all know plaintiff's attorneys are going to send an investigator to the site once their client signed up and, you know, to not, to learn about it after the fact, you know, and when it's too late, when we get the file and, you know, plaintiff's done their investigation. And if the uh, contractor or the owner or the developer has not Uh, If they don't have someone like you, they're going to be behind the eight ball because somebody else is going to have done the investigation and locked everything up.
2: Right. We always tell the client, just report it, report it to you, to your broker and have a discussion with your broker on if it's something that needs to be reported to the carrier. Don't wait until you get served with a summons and complaint. Um, If if it happens and it's especially if it's your own employee, but even if it's on your project, whatever it might be, call your broker, have that discussion. Um, and, and listen to their guidance on whether or not it's something that should be reported, if it's something that's a notice only, um, you know, it's, it's um, an education to the client. A lot of times I have to tell them, listen, I know you're saying it has nothing to do with you, but in three years, someone's not going to remember that. So let's report it, let's have an, uh, an investigation, and then we can close the file down until something, if something develops. But I'll tell you a funny story when you said that, you know, the plaintiff attorney is already starting to build their case. So, when I was at Lend Lease, one of our, our first notice one time was actually from a plaintiff firm because we had a ground up construction and he had somebody um, sitting on the rooftop of the building across the way, just watching the job site to see if anything was going to happen. And sure enough, an accident happened and his employee had videoed the whole thing. And that was our first notice, you know, within 20 minutes of the accident happening.
1: I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I mean talk the, offline the, who that is, but I thought I <laughs> won't be surprised at that either.
2: Yes. I mean in that and you know in this industry that happens all the time. You know, they're mm-hmm. just waiting right outside of large projects to see, oh, did anybody get hurt today? Here's my card. Yep. You know, um, ambulance shows up. Which hospital are you going to? Let me mm-hmm. follow it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So true. <laughs> Um, so shifting gears, I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to discuss the charity that you helped start called Alexander's Angels. And I want you to uh, tell everyone a little bit about that and what you do for the charity and what maybe people can do um, if they're interested.
2: Okay. Yes. So um, Alexander's Angels was created to bring awareness and money for research for Down syndrome. Um, it's actually pretty personable, personal because my sister's nephew was uh, born with Down syndrome and um, the family and his grandparents, especially wanted to know, well, what's the next steps? What do we do? You know um, what do the parents do? What does the family need to do? And th- there was uh, limited resources for them to go to. Um, and they had to go to, Separate resources, there was nothing centralized. Let's say like like with um, multiple sclerosis, you have the Multiple Sclerosis Society and you can give them a call and they can refer you out to different agencies if need be. But there wasn't something like that for Down syndrome, um, especially in the New York area. So um, my sister's mother-in-law started Alexander's Angels because Alexander was her grandson who was born with Down syndrome.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, you know, she wanted to help bring relief to uh, other families who were going through the same thing. And while when she uh, started this um, foundation. She had found out that there were no major fundraisers in uh, New York, especially on Long Island for Down syndrome research and support. So she brought the, the Buddy Walk, which is a um, national fundraiser to Long Island. Um, And that's what we have that every year. Mm -hmm. In fact, the 16th year is coming up. (laughs) If you can see my little brochure here.
1: Yeah, and we can talk to Joe about putting something up maybe in post-production so they can see, uh, anybody who's watching can see that better.
2: Yes, yes. So um, that's our uh, largest fundraiser um, every year. And um, we, myself, my family, um, Alexander's family, uh, we started off with maybe a few hundred people coming to this walk and, and, you know, we had, um, collected donations and did registration and, and the t-shirts. And then that kind of snowballed into, um, more people wanting to get involved, uh, donations of food and entertainment. So today it's, it's a full day. Um, there are just, so many wonderful people out there who, uh, contribute for, um, you know, um, baskets and raffles and food and entertainment. And, um, this year it's at, uh, Sunken Meadow Park mm-hmm. and, um, the money that is raised a hundred percent of the money does go to research and awareness, uh, for down syndrome. And we incorporate as many, um, down syndrome, uh, people as possible, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, people affected with, uh, down syndrome, Mm -hmm. um, there it's, it's just such a loving fun day. Um, but we do it all year long. Uh, we're not doing big fundraisers all day long, but to bring, um, awareness to, uh, down syndrome, there are, um, uh, little things that go on. Uh, there's a, uh, down syndrome awareness day at the, um, at the, uh, one of the malls, it's, it's, the name is out of my head right now, but mm-hmm. um, they'll have um, people come in to do um, artwork or walk around the, around the mall and talk to people just to educate them. They'll have um, a band set up and do all kinds of dancing and, uh, and music. Uh, we also sponsor a uh, Down syndrome art show where all the art has been um, um, done by those with Down syndrome. And uh, that's a great event as well. Uh, there's, so there's there's really a lot of different ways to get involved. The most important thing, though, is that uh, also uh, this website, Alexander's uh, Angels, has um, resources all in one place for people who may need assistance, who want to know what's going on, um, you know, there's, there's obviously different degrees and, and certain people need different, um, resources and, and it's now it's been sure. centralized so that, um, uh, parents can look through it and see exactly what, what they need.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, it, so is it alexanderangels.com? Is that the website?
2: It is, um, let's see, uh, don't know if they, uh, yes, Alexander's, Alexander's
1: Dot org. Okay. alexandersangels.org angels.org. Excellent. Correct. Excellent. Well, that's fantastic work. It sounds like an amazing charity. Amazing. So good for you. And, and, um, it sounds like you're doing God's work, which is fantastic. Um, so I like to end the interview with what I call the lightning round. And I'm just going to ask you to say the first thing that pops up into your head as I go through these questions. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. New construction or renovation?
2: Accidents.
1: (laughs) Uh, And choose one or the other for the next ones, okay? Email or telephone? Email. Fiction or nonfiction?
2: Nonfiction.
1: Dogs or cats?
2: Dogs. The
1: Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. The Wizard of Oz or Wicked?
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Um, Wizard of Oz.
1: Running or cycling?
2: And another tough one, but I'll go with cycling.
1: And I know offline, you told me you're no longer running. You know, I also, I can't run because of my knees or hips. And I just, I like to bike also. So, <clears throat> um, Appetizers or desserts? Desserts, sweet tooth. <laughs> okay, good to know. And uh, coaching or playing? Coaching. Coaching is great. Uh, I went yes. through all that with the kids too. So it was fun. And that's all I have today. And I want to thank you, Nancy, so much for being a part of this. It's been great, and I've really actually learned so much, and it's a pleasure to see you as always. Hopefully, I'll see you in person soon, and uh, I thank you for spending some time
0: with us.
2: Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Of course.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks for being a part of our Risk Matters uh, podcast. A great and very, very uh, enlightening interview. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Tom.